Lord, that is so true, so mighty, so powerful is the wonderful work of the cross that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us so we might have eternal life. Lord, I just pray right now as we go to your word, help us, Lord, to have a better understanding of your love and your grace, to know you better, because to know you is to love you. You are a great and an awesome God. May you be our teacher tonight. May you be glorified in all that happens here. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 11, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 for this coming Sunday. So going through the New Testament. If you do need a Bible and you got here late, raise your hand. We'll be happy to get you one because you're going to need it. All right. By the way, of quick review, I'm not going to go as as in-depth as maybe normally, but just remember Judges shows the cycles of sin. Seven times in the book of Judges over a almost 400 year period of time, we see this constant cycle, walking with God, being led by a deliverer, doing well. The deliverer dies. As soon as he dies, they go right back to the sin of the world. As soon as they get caught up in the sin of the world, God sends an oppressor. God sends consequences to their sin. And then after they're under the consequences of their sin for some time, sometimes a few years, sometimes many years, they finally cry out to God and then God restores them by sending them yet another deliverer who brings them back out of bondage and back into right fellowship with Him. Now last week we saw a little bit of a unique circumstance. In chapter 10, a message I entitled uh, The Enemies of Godly Character, we saw that God... They cried out and God said, I'm done with you. That's it. You guys remember that from last week? God just said, okay, I'm done. You know what? You keep crying out, but you keep turning back to these false gods. No more. And the encouragement to all of us is that God is a God of grace and mercy and he does suffer long, but he won't suffer always. There is going to come a time where there will be accountability for our sin and for our actions and we will stand before Almighty God and give account. Well, as we know, the chapter didn't end that way because they continued to cry out, cry out to God. They put away their foreign gods. There was an action to their, to their crying out. Because before, you know, a lot of times we cry out to God to get out of the consequences. And God's not dumb. He knows when we're doing that. Amen? He knows when we're truly repentant and broken and, and at the end of ourselves. And He knows when we're just get, telling Him what we think He wants to hear so we can get out from under the rock that fell on us, Right? And that's where the children of Israel really were. And the Lord said, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not. I'm done. I keep forgiving you and you keep doing it again. And then this time they put the foreign gods away. And as soon as they did, they put the foreign gods away and they turned their heart back to the Lord. It said he showed mercy to them yet again. Well, we come to the end of the chapter and the Ammonites had come in and oppressed them. God had sent the Ammonites and the Philistines in because of their disobedience. And we end the chapter and they were looking for someone to lead them. Because now God had forgiven them, but they needed a deliverer. All this being a a picture of Christ. The man needs to be delivered from our sin. We can't do it ourselves. We need a deliverer. We need a savior. And for us, praise God, we know who it is. It's Jesus Christ. But we see here that they needed a deliverer. And the chapter ends with them saying, well, who's going to deliver us? We have no one. You know what? When you have 18 years of idolatry in the land, you run out of godly leaders. And you know what, we're getting, we, uh, the leadership you have is a reflection of who the people are. You know, the leadership you have in a country reflects where the people's hearts are. The leadership you have in a church reflects where the people's hearts are. And so we need to make sure that, again, we look for those who are called by God to lead and we settle for nothing less than that. So we come to chapter 11 and as we get to tonight's chapter, we're going to see that having been aroused 
this anger against Israel because of their repeated offenses against God. The Ammonites are there. Israel, again, had repented, though at the same time had gotten caught up in all the sins of the world. By the way, I don't believe that they, and I said this last week, I don't believe that they were caught up in idolatry because they really liked the shiny idols. That's not it. They didn't walk by a shiny idol one day and go, oh, cool, I should worship that. That's not what happens. What happens is this shiny idol is the god of sex, and if you worship him, there's temple prostitutes there. Oh, I think I'll go down there. That's what happens. This is the God of money. If you worship Him, He'll give you a bunch of stuff. Oh, that sounds pretty good. I think I'll follow after Him. And so what happens is it's not the idol, it's the thing the idol brought. And what the Lord said at the, in that verse was He turned to them and said, let your idol deliver you. Remember that last week? He goes, okay, you keep coming to me, let your idols deliver you this time. And for an application for you and I today would be if God turned to us and said, okay, your, your career's your God, let your career deliver you this time. Your bank account's your God? Let your bank account overcome your cancer. You know, your, your possessions or your pride or your drugs or your alcohol or the adulterous relationship you're in or your gossip or lying or whatever, let that deliver you. And you know what? You, whatever you serve, that is your God. And we're all serving somebody or we're serving something and he wanted to get their focus back on serving the true and living God. Remember that true repentance does produce a godly action. So as we come to this chapter tonight, God's choice of a leader and deliverer in the midst of when there's no deliverer should be a great encouragement to everybody in this room, and it should also serve as a warning to us as well. It should encourage us that God can use anybody. The Bible says He uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I love to be reminded of that, seeing that I'm a pastor, okay? Because that makes me a foolish thing. And it makes each one of us that's being used by God a foolish thing. So you're either a foolish thing or a napping thing, and you need to be a foolish thing, amen? Be busy about God's work. So he says he used the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and we're going to see that God indeed can use anybody. But we also ought to be warned not to see things as man sees. The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart, and the guy that's going to be raised up as a leader from the world's perspective is the last guy that they would choose. And often that's what God does. You know why? Because then he gets glorified. So may we not dismiss somebody that we don't think is, quote, worthy. None of us are worthy, amen? amen? So here's the title of the message. The man or woman, the man or woman that God uses. And I'm going to give you five points. Number one, it isn't usually the one that we would choose. The man or the woman God uses is not usually the one we would choose. I hear this all the time. If that rock star would get saved, think how many people would come to the Lord. If that movie star would get saved, think how many people would come to the Lord. You know what? A rock star or a movie star can't lead anybody more to the Lord than you can. Amen? Because it's not, if they're coming for the rock star, they've missed it because there's only one star and only one celebrity in Christianity and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? And so the problem is that we get all caught up thinking God can use this person. God often uses, most often uses the person we would never choose. And maybe you're here tonight saying, well, God would never choose me. Well, then get ready. Number two, not only is a man God uses using somebody that, God, that we wouldn't choose, it's someone who is faithful to serve whether they're recognized or not. You know, I often have young, young pastors-to-be. I'm on this thing called Christian Forums. I'm in a ministry line, and you can come and ask a pastor a question. I respond to these guys. I try to do that because not working full-time anymore. I love an opportunity to reach out to people as often as I can. And I get that question a lot. Well, I'm praying about ministry. What should I do? You know, what, what do I need to do? What do my qualifications need to be? And I tell them, just start serving. 
Just go where you are and start serving. And they're like, well, how, who's gonna know, how are they going to notice me if I'm you know, working in the children's ministry? Don't worry about them noticing you. You just be faithful, and if God wants you to do something else, He'll open the door for you. And so we need to be faithful whether anybody ever notices us or not. And that's the number two attribute we're going to see in the text tonight. So it's usually someone that we would not choose. And number two, it's someone who's faithful to serve whether they're recognized or not. Number three, they respond faithfully when called. When the calling does come, they say, yes, Lord, I'm here. I'll do it. Too often people drag their feet. I've had people tell me, I've known I'm called for six years. I'm still praying. If you've known you're called for six years, you should have started doing what you're called to do six years ago. Oh, I know I'm called. Then start doing it. If you're called, you'll, you'll produce action in your life. Something will be happening. So number three, responds faithfully when called. Number four, uses godly wisdom in fulfilling his calling. And we're going to see that a person who's called by God will know the word of God and will be led by the Holy Spirit. Again, you might sit there and say, well, I can't be called and I don't know the Bible very much. You know what? God can use you right where you are, but you need to continue to stay in the Word so you're more equipped. And then lastly, you're willing to lay down your life if necessary. So the man God uses isn't usually the one we would choose, is faithful to serve whether he's recognized or not, responds faithfully when called, uses godly wisdom to fulfill his calling, and lastly, is willing to lay down his life if necessary. So let's begin in verse 1, looking at the man God uses. It isn't usually the one we would choose, Remember again, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor, but he was a son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. Now, now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor. Now what's interesting, his name Jephthah means he who opens or breaks through, or one whom God sets free. like that name. One who God sets free. If I had any more kids, I might have to name them that, but I, I'm done, so... But it says here he's a Gileadite, which means he's a descendant of Gilead. Now, so we know this about him. It says here that, you know, here's his name, and then it says he is a mighty man of valor. And I love when there's numerous adjectives describing a man. Mighty man means powerful, strong warrior. Now, what were they looking for? What was missing in the land? A what? A leader. Someone to lead them into battle against the Ammonites. What kind of man would they be looking for? A mighty warrior powerful and strong it says there he's a mighty man of valor the word valor means a man of force virtue strength or substance so this guy's powerful he's strong he's got virtue he's godly wow this looks like the guy this has got to be the guy right should be in a time when israel was desperate for a godly judge and deliverer to lead them out of battle against the ammonite oppressors Je- Je- uh, Jephthah was a man gifted and called by God, but he was rejected by men. Why? Look at the rest of the verse. But he was the son of a harlot. Oh, we, it can't be him. His mother was a prostitute. Uh, he, you know, he was born out of an illegitimate relationship. Uh, that can't be the one that God would use. The word harlot can mean prostitute, but it can also mean if in the original language, it can mean hostess or innkeeper, and it could be she was just a, a concubine of his father. So at worst, he was born through a relationship, a one-night stand between a, this man and this prostitute. At best, this was a, an affair or mistress of a married man, and this is how he grew up. Now we know as we read the text that he was actually brought into his father's home. 
So his dad at least recognized, this is my son. He brought him into his home, and he was raised with all the other kids. But can you imagine how things might have been different for him than the rest of the children in the family? Because he wasn't of their mom. And no doubt he caught some heat. Well, he's really going to catch it when his dad dies. So we see here that he was a mighty man of God. He was a man that, again, God could use in a mighty way. He was powerful, strong, warrior, God's man, but his parents weren't married. Now again, this is sinful behavior. But what did Jephthah have to do with that? Absolutely nothing. Can I encourage you? And again, I get in trouble every time I do this, and I should stop, but I'm not going to because that's just, that's it. We need to get rid of all the psychobabble that says, well, the way you were raised, you know, and that's the reason you are the way you are. And certainly the way we're raised has an impact on who we become. That's true, okay? But it's not an excuse to live an ungodly life. Amen? Well, my mom, if you knew, my father, if you knew what my family was like, well, I come from a dysfunctional home. Well, join the club because a better word is sinful and every one of us came from a sinful home. Amen? Everyone, Adam and Eve, first family, Cain killed Abel. First family, the first son killed the second. Talk about dysfunctional. Amen? So it's all sinful. And the problem we have is we start looking for the perfect person with a perfect home and the perfect life and the perfect marriage. and the per- Nobody would be in ministry. Amen? We need to look for the person that God has his hand upon. Instead of looking for the perfect resume, look for someone who's fallen in love with the Lord. Someone who's totally surrendered to God. So though Jephthah, though born through sinful behavior, was a man gifted, chosen, and loved by God. But in man's eyes, he was disqualified by the actions of his parents. And you and I can make that same mistake today, judging men by the world's standards or outward appearances instead of the word of God and the grace of God. We often see this in Scripture. Who are some of the most mighty men and women of God in the Bible? People that came out of some messed up homes. Is that true or not? Half the time, they got put into ministry because their own family was persecuting them. Ask Joseph. His brothers threw him in a pit. They wanted to kill him. And then the older brother, Reuben, said, oh, well, I don't think we should kill him. So then they sold him into slavery instead. Oh, well, thanks a lot. But you know what? Did God use that? Joseph could have said, man, I come from a messed up family. Instead, he became the prince of Egypt. Amen? And God used him mightily. How about David? His own brothers mocked him. His own father didn't have a whole lot of confidence in him because when they came to anoint the king, he didn't even call him in out of the field. They went through and looked at everybody else and finally, we got one more. But there's somewhere. That was David's family. David, mighty man of God. How about Jesus? His own brothers rejected him. None of his brothers believed he was the Messiah until after he rose from the dead. How in the world does that happen? You grow up with Jesus. And I I will say this, I I think it would be awesome to have Jesus and a brother. It would be kind of tough too, wouldn't it? Your mom and dad, now why would you be more like your brother? (laughs) That would be pretty rough. Probably calling him Mr. Goody Two Sandals or something, I don't know. (laughs) But the point is that God can do great things and brings us out. I mean, because again, we saw Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute, is in the line of our Savior. Amen? So don't, we, we need to look past and think, well, because my past is rough. You know what? If, if every guy who had a rough past couldn't be a pastor, the Calvary Chapels would go out of business. Because if you've ever read the book Harvest, a bunch of drug addicts and dopers and, you know, I mean, unbelievable. You know what, though? He has been forgiven much, loves much. Amen? 
And he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And so sadly, here because of who he is, it says, and Gilead beget Jephthah. Now look what happens. Gilead's wife bore sons. So he's the illegitimate son, and there are some legitimate sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Now, what's interesting here is this probably happened at his father's death. Because if his dad was around, they probably wouldn't have gotten away with it. So the dad dies. It's time to give out the inheritance. Everybody comes in to get their inheritance. They look at him and like, Jeff, what are you doing here? You're not, you're not part of our family. Your mom was a prostitute. So why don't you just get out of here? And they literally drove him away. Their own brother. As soon as his father died, tough enough, this innocent bystander was treated with disdain by his own brothers. Here again, we have just one consequence of sex outside of marriage. Amen? When we, have, when we break the bond of marriage and have sex outside of marriage, there are consequences that go on and on and on and on. This guy's dead, and there's still consequences to his own family. Now, again, there's consequences, but it doesn't mean he can't be used mightily, and we're going to see that he will. So they gave him nothing. They sent him packing. Little did they know they're rejecting the future judge of Israel. Now, when he gets kicked out by his own family and is given nothing, he could have had a pity party for himself. He could have said, man, that ain't right. You know, it, it's more than likely he was actually, he may have been the oldest. So here he was, maybe the oldest son, having lived in the house the longest, having been with his father the longest, and he gets nothing. And he could have been sent out and thought, what, what, what kind of treatment is that? You know what? God's going to do great things because of it. And he would be the man that God would use. While man looks on the outward appearance, and they rejected him because of it and sent him away, praise God that he looks on the heart. The man God uses, number one, isn't usually the one we would choose. And in this case, this is not the one that man would choose, and they sent him back in verse 3. The rest of verse 2, it says, You shall have no inheritance in your father's house, for you're the son of another woman. Verse 3, Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. Now the second thing is, not only is the man God uses a man that we wouldn't normally choose, secondly, he is faithful to serve whether he's recognized or not. So Jephthah gets sent away, and we're going to find out this guy's character by the kind of man he is when he's sent away with no money, no resources, no family, nothing. And they just send him packing. How does he respond? Does he go drink himself to death? Does he go get caught up in prostitution, you know, hanging out with women and get caught up in idolatry what does he do look what it says he says he went away to the land of Tob. now he went his own way he didn't murmur or complain or fight for his rights he just left he went to the land of Tob, which is about 13 miles southeast of the sea of galilee or about 80 miles away from where these guys are so he goes 80 miles away but guess where he is he's right on the border of ammon near ammon where the ammonites are Ammonites and Syria. Now, Ammon is their oppressor and their enemy. Now, what would a leader do? What would a godly leader do if, he had, if they had recognized him and made him the godly leader? What would he have done to the Ammonites? He would have attacked them, fought them, made a treaty with them, something, right? Well, guess what? He's going to go away and do it anyway without anybody telling him that's what he's supposed to do. You know why? Because when someone's called by God, they'll be obedient whether anybody knows it or not. Now he goes away to the land of Tob, look what it says. And he dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah. Now if you look at that word worthless, you can misinterpret that. It doesn't mean wicked men, but it means men 
who had no money. Empty men. No money. Jephthah has no money. And so he's the leader of the men with no money. So these men with no money, again, they're not standing on the corner holding a sign. What are they doing? They're going to be busy about God's work. Because you don't have to have a lot of money in the bank to be used by God. You can have nothing in the bank, amen? And too often we make the excuse, if I had a better job, if I had more income, if I had more money in the bank, if I had... These men had nothing, were much like Jephthah, and they gathered together with him, but they recognized the calling on his life, that he was indeed a mighty man of valor, and instead of leading Israel, he's going to lead the men that God put in his life. Whoever God gives me, I'll lead them, because that's what God's called me to do. That was his heart. He says there, and, he went, and they went out, they banded together with Jephthah, and went out raiding with him. Now the word there, raiding, if you'll notice in your Bible, is that in italics? That's in italics. Whenever you see a word in italics in the Bible, that means it's not in the original text. It means it's put there to clarify the meaning. Okay? So when you see a word in italics in the Bible, it means it's not a word directly that came from the text, but it's put in there and it's italicized to help us give the meaning behind what's happening there. So, let me clarify what it really means. They're not out raping and plundering. They're raiding the enemy. Who's the enemy? The Ammonites. What are they doing? The very thing he would have been doing if they'd recognized he was the leader to begin with. He is going into the land. Remember when David was fleeing from Saul? Do you guys remember that? He gathered up a bunch of worthless men, right? And they went out and attacked them. They went out and raided the Amalekites, who were the enemies of Israel. David was being the king when they didn't call him king. He was doing what the king should be doing. Here, Jephthah is doing the very thing that the king should be doing, or that the deliverer, in this case, should be doing. They made raids on Israel's enemies, and again, mainly on the Ammonites. They probably attacked the people of Syria as well. But again, we see with no direction, all but hopeless before its enemy, lacking wisdom, the only one that's doing anything to overcome the enemy is this guy that was banished. He's the only one. The rest of them are sitting around not knowing what in the world they can do. Now here's the great thing about this. He's the only one making an impact on the enemy, and it might seem like nobody notices, but watch how God's going to use this, because the man that God uses isn't usually one we would choose. He is one who's faithful whether we recognize it or not, but you know what? He responds faithfully when called, because guess what? People do notice. Look at verse 4. It came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. So, We're going back and forth in time a little bit here. Jethro's called. The people of Ammon now have come into the land. They've gone in and they're, as we know from last chapter, they've gone in, they're attacking all the different tribes and making war. So the people of Ammon are in the land. They're making war against the children of Israel. Verse 5. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get, who? Jethro from the land of Tob. Now wait a minute. At the end of last chapter, they said, we got nobody. Who are we going to make king? We got nobody. Now his brothers have sent him away. He's been gone for some time. And now the word comes back. Hey, there's this guy Jethro down there. He's got a band of raiders. You know what they're doing? They're going in and wiping out the Ammonites all by themselves. He's having great victories. He's winning battles. He's God's hands on him. Man, we need that guy on our side. See, he's being faithful in the small things. Now God's going to use him in the great things. He didn't know the greater things were coming. He was just being faithful to what's in front of him. Too often, we need to, we, I need the roadmap. So if I, if I work with the three and four-year-olds, 
how long before I get to... No, 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 no. You should be in there because you feel called to be in there. Amen? And I'll be in here the rest of my life if that's what the Lord wants. But often, that's where God may prepare you for something more or something else. So the people of Ammon made war against Israel. They're passing over the Jordan. They're attacking and oppressing. The people are lost without direction. And it says there, verse 6, Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. They said before, who is the man that will fight for us? And now they recognize him based upon the word that's come back to them. They send the elders, and I love this, the elders went there. They didn't send people there. They traveled 80 miles to find this guy. And they didn't have cars. 80 miles was a, you know, it could be a three to four day trip. Maybe they had camels a couple days. But they were having to move a long distance to go find this guy. This shows they were desperate. They had nobody else to turn to. Nobody else was stepping up. Who was God's man? Let's go find this guy. And they went down and sought him out. He was faithfully battling the enemy in relative anonymity. But at the same time, God was preparing him for something greater. So they said to him, come and be our commander. Look at Jethro's response, verse 7. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, do you not hate me? Isn't this kind of how Jesus responded? Let me read back to you, back in the last chapter. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And after they cried out to the Lord, he says there, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will deliver you no more. His response was, you've gone after other gods. Why are you coming to me? Don't, you walked away from me. You've re, you walked away from me at all these seven different times now. You're serving all these different gods. Why are you coming to me again? He wants to find out where their heart is. Jephthah's the same way. Don't you hate me? You knew I was getting kicked out of town. I almost wonder if one of his brothers was one of the elders. I don't know. They at least have had to have been a party of it because he's saying, don't you hate me? You guys kicked me out of town. Now you're coming and asking for my help. When dividing their prosperity, they send him packing. Now in desperation and difficulty, they cry out to him. And then it says, do you hate me? Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? Why do you wait till things are difficult? Now you come to me. May that not be our relationship with the Lord, you guys. May it not be that he's only the distress call. He's the bat signal, you know what I mean? You hit the thing and the bat signal goes up. Only when things are tough, I'm going to go, oh, better get, get a hold of God now. You know, maybe we have intimate fellowship with him every single day. And so we see here that this was a distress call. And the elders, verse 8, of Gilead said to Jephthah, this is, what we have turned again to, this is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Man, things done changed. They were kicking him out with no inheritance. Now they want him to basically be the leader of the entire country. We want you to be our military deliverer, the governor over our people. We want you to be in charge of everything. They kicked him out. Now they want him to be in charge. What did he do? He just went away and was faithful to what God had called him to do. He had no idea what was coming. He had no idea of the blessing that would be there if he would just be faithful. Notice the emphasis though. Watch, look at verse 9. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? 
Notice that he says, if I go back with you, who does he say is going to bring the victory? The Lord. This is a man who's called by God. He doesn't say, I've been waiting for you knuckleheads. I've been seeing how you've been getting tore up. I could have helped you out a long time ago. That's not what happens. By the way, I'm going to, this is what it's going to cost. You know, 500 buckets of gold, and that's what I'm going to need. That's not what he's doing at all. He doesn't see this as a political ploy. He doesn't see this as a, an opportunity for him to have power. He sees this as an opportunity for God to be glorified. He sees this as an opportunity for the Lord's name to be magnified and lifted up. He says, so if the Lord delivers them, shall I be your head? If the Lord delivers them, shall I be in that position of authority then? You know why he wanted to know that? Because he knew that God had a calling on his life and he wanted to be obedient to it. He was God's man. And sometimes we look at that and we think, well, nobody should ever feel that way. But at some point, we need to respond to God's calling on our life. At some point, we need to recognize it. And it's not always easy. I have to tell you, I, you know, God made it very clear to me that he had a calling in my life. It was very, very, very clear to me. My whole priority in my whole life just changed. Everything. Everything I thought was important wasn't important anymore. It's, it's just radically changed. My wife and I were talking about this not too long ago. She said, man, I saw it happen. I saw you going, man, it was just like, wow. Where's the guy I married? What happened to him? Because everything changes when you recognize God's calling on your life. And it's, you know what, guys? It's okay. We ought to be excited about it. Amen. But you know what, can I encourage you, if you feel that way, be busy where you are until God shows you what else He has for you, and you won't have to strive for it. Did Jephthah strive for this position? Did he come down to town and say, hey guys, yeah, I notice you're totally blowing it. Let me tell you what you need to do, and I need to be in charge. That's not what happened. He was just being faithful where he was, and they showed up. He said, hey, we see God's hand on your life, and we need your help. You know what, that's what I look for in ministry. I look for guys and gals who are serving the Lord with their whole heart. And that's when you recognize God's calling on their life. Verse 10. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. They make the most solemn oath you can ever make before God. They basically say, If we don't do what we've said, may God bring vengeance upon us. God is our witness that what you have said If you come with us, God brings the victory. You will indeed lead us. You will be our deliverer. You will be our our judge. Verse 11. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So here's what happens. They make a promise to him, and now he says, Okay, well, you said it to me. We're going to go do this before the Lord and before the people. Because this isn't going to be a quiet back door, you're telling me what God's going to do. You know what, we're going to do this in front of God and everybody. So Mizpah was where, nearby was where the tabernacle was. Where the tabernacle was, was where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. And he said, we're going to go down there, we're going to get in front of all the people, and we're going to say, we recognize God's calling us upon your life. And then he got up in front of everybody, in front of the Lord, he testified of what he had said. Lord, I'm going to go out and serve you, and if you bring the victory... You know, you be glorified. Lord, it's in your hands. He testifies boldly in front of all the people. Now, I wonder, there are probably a few people in the audience feeling a little awkward. Jephthah's brothers (laughs) sent him packing, right? He is now the main Bubba over the people, right? He's the guy. Now, they might have thought that they were really kicking him to the curb when they sent him packing over the inheritance. He comes back, he's over all of it. 
You know, sometimes we think, oh, God, man, we just, it just doesn't seem right. I didn't get that promotion. It just doesn't seem right. This happened to me. You know what? God's got something greater. You need to learn to trust in the sovereignty of God because He's faithful and He knows. You know, man, they, they, they renounced Him. They sent Him packing. And here He came back and He was the military captain, the political governor, the judge, and the deliverer over all of Israel. Know that God is faithful and He will give us far more than what we think. And again, not stuff. Stuff may come. It's not about stuff. It's about impacting eternity. So the man or woman God uses. And and again, so this inauguration happens. More than likely there was a prayer and a blessing, maybe even a sacrifice. So the man God uses isn't usually one we would choose. Is faithful to serve whether he's recognized or not. Responds faithfully when he's called. Now, fourthly, Uses godly wisdom in fulfilling his calling. How do you have wisdom? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Faith, we need to have faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by word of God. So you need to be, he needs to be a man of the word, a man who's led by the spirit. And we're going to notice that he uses incredible wisdom that must come from God. Watch, it, watch this. And remember, they've got the enemy mounted up against them. They're all, what do we do? What do we do? Right? This guy shows up. And watch how God clearly has a calling on his life by the way he responds. Look at verse 12. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon. What do you have against me? Do you have to come and fight against me in my land? Now he doesn't just go in and say, mount him up, let's go smoke these guys. Which, if they had, nobody would have said anything. Obviously he has sought the Lord. And immediately begins to pursue a peaceful resolution even before he starts a battle. Now, is this guy the most mighty warrior on the planet probably? Yeah. Is he courageous? Yes. Has he already won many battles? Has he already been wiping out the Ammonites with a pack of a few guys? Yeah. But what does he do? No doubt he sought the Lord, and this is what God put on his heart, pursue peace first. Why? Because a good leader will want to save his people from harm. And if we go into battle, even if we win, some of my people are going to die. And I want peace first. So I'm going to pursue peace first. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to ask them, what, what problem do you have against us? What is it that we've done? What is it you seek amongst us? I need to know your heart so I can negotiate and speak to you in a kind way. And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers, messengers of Jephthah, verse 13, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt. When they came up out of Egypt. How long ago was that? That's like having a gr- guy, you know, when I was four, you stole my trike, and I'm, I have problems with you. You know what I mean? This has been hundreds, nobody is alive. Nobody's great-grandmother is alive. Everybody's died a long time ago. And so he's got this axe, well, when you guys came up out of Egypt. What are you talking about? But again, look what it says. He says there, in verse 13, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from Arnon as far as Jabbok, and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore these lands, those lands peaceably. So he gives him his, his reason or his way of having peace. You give me back the land from Arnon to Jabbok, and we can be friends. Give me back the land. Well, guess what? It wasn't, his land, it wasn't their land. It was God's land. You know what's interesting? You know what that land is today? It's, the, it's Jordan. So who does Jordan really belong to? Let's get into that. All right. It's Israel's. I'm sorry, guys. And so, you know, people are giving back pieces of Israel, but Jordan belongs to Israel, too, as far as the Bible's concerned. And so, see what God does. 
So here's the thing. They're there and they're, they're wanting all this land back. And, and again, he could have just said, you guys are out of your mind. But instead he responds from a man who knows the word. Because listen to his response. He could only give this response if he knows what the word of God says. So Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up out of Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom, the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. They should have been friends, right? Esau is the brother of Jacob. Jacob is the father of Israel. These guys are cousins. You would think they'd let them go through their land. Well, no, he says no. They would not heed. And in like manner, they sent us to the king of Moab, Moab, descendants of Lot. It says, but they would, not, they would not consent. It's interesting that the descendants of Lot would not let them go through their land. And Lot's descendants wouldn't have been around if it hadn't been God's grace getting them out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Amen? But they've forgotten all that. Now it says here, so Israel remained in Kadesh. Now, now, so they went along the path of the wilderness, verse 18, bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, came up on the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of Arnon. Basically what it says is they didn't go into Edom and they didn't go into Moab at all. They went around the long way. They honored their request, don't walk through our land. They're on their way to the land of promise. They didn't want their land anyway. They're going around the long way to get there. And they were, they were just... Again, trying to keep peace with the people that surrounded them. And then it says there, But they did not enter the border of Moab or Arnon that was on the border of Moab. Now, here come the Ammonites. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land into our place. So he'd asked the Moabites and said no. They walked around. They asked the... the, uh, that's the Edomites. And they said no. So they walked around. Well, now they come to another land, and this time it's the Amorites. And the Amorites are going to have a whole other problem. Look what it says there. But Sihon, remember Sihon and Og, they were both what kind of men? Who remembers? They were giants. Sihon and Og were big guys. They were giants. They were some of the giants that scared the people away initially. Giants in the land. And they were on the outskirts of the land. So Sihon didn't trust Israel. And look what he does, verse 20. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and camped at Jahaz and fought against Israel. Now who started this fight? He did. Sihon. They were just simply going their own merry way. He didn't trust them, so he attacked. He mounted up his armies and he attacked Israel. These are the forefathers of the Ammonites. And they attacked Israel. Israel minding their own business. He's saying, we took their, he's saying, wait a minute, you're saying Israel took your land. Uh, I've read the book of Numbers. That's, you know who's talking here? Right? Jephthah's going, I've read the book of Numbers and I know what happened. And that's not what happened. I'll tell you what happened. He's replaying for them exactly what happened. How can he do it? He read the Bible. So if you know the word of God, you can respond with wisdom to people who are attacking you. You can speak in truth and do it in love. And at the same time, you can have wisdom. It says, and the Lord God, 
Now again, who does he give the glory to? The Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. Guess why you guys lost your land? You attacked God, and God smoked you. That's what happened. You should not be attacking God. Wrong move. Don't attack God. They attacked God. God smoked them. Now he's saying the Lord God of Israel is the one that took your land. He's the one you got a problem with, right? He took your land. Why did he take it? You attacked his children. God doesn't like it when you attack his kids. Aren't you glad to know that you're one of his kids? And aren't you glad to know that God doesn't take it kindly when people come out after you? I'm glad that God's on my side. How about you? He's a faithful God. I don't need Smith and Wesson. I got Jesus Christ. Amen? He's a faithful God. So the, Lord, the result of the Lord God of Israel delivered them. And again, he's giving God the glory. The other nations' victories claimed it by the will of their false gods. And he's telling them it's the true and living God that brought it. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited the country. They did, verse 22. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from Arnon to Jabbok and from the wilderness to Jordan. It's interesting that the capital of Jordan today is Ammon. Ammon, right? Isn't that the capital? What does that sound like? Ammonites, right? They once ruled there. So we see here that the reason they had lost their land is they'd come against God's people. He's bringing them back to the truth. He's using wisdom. He says in verse 23, And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people. Should you then possess it? He said, God's the one who took your people out and it was when you attacked us and God's the one who brought the victory and now we should just give it back to you. Uh, No, I don't think so. It's God's land. God's the one who took it. And God uses the word of God to bring truth to the enemy. Jephthah refutes the lies of the Ammonite king with the truth of the word of God. How do you you refute the lies of uh, evolution? Word of God. How do you refute the lies of moral relativism? Word of God. How do you refute the lies of Mormonism? The Word of God. How do you refute the lies of any other false religion and faith or anything else out there? The Word of God. So here's the lie. Here's the Word of God. And you want to refute all the lies? Know the Word of God better. Amen? You know why people stumble and fall for cults? They don't know the truth. You know, I don't don't spend a whole lot of time reading the Book of Mormon. I don't have to. You know why? Because if you read this, you can refute it. Amen? I don't spend a lot of time reading a lot of other books. I don't. I read this one. Because if you know the truth, you will recognize the lie when you hear it. I can watch a a person on TV for three minutes and know where they're at spiritually. Any of those guys pre... Oh, that's off. And I only need one off and I'm done. Next channel, right? I don't stay on very, very many of those channels very long, unfortunately. So Israel was just going along seeking a peaceable passage. Amorites refused. They attacked them. The God of Israel delivered the land to Israel by defeating the Amorites and Sihon their king and by the blessing of God on their military they have obtained this in battle they won the battle should we now give it back to you Jephthah knowing God's word could speak with authority and confidence verse 24 will not you possess whatever Shamosh your God gives you to possess you know if you got a problem with it go get your God if your God gives you something you can have it you know what? Chamosh was the fish god. That just cracks me up. You imagine a god shaped like a fish? How stupid is that? The fish god. You know? I don't get it. And so he says there, your traditional god, if he gives you something, great. 
But you know what? Our God won the battle and proved He's greater than your God. Because your God doesn't exist. So whoever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. If your God forgives you something, you possess it. When our God gives us something, we possess it. Verse 25. And now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zephor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? Remember Balak? Who did he send to spy and and to bring a curse? Remember? Balaam. And then a donkey talked to Balaam. And Balaam answered him back, which always blows me away. (laughs) Arguing with a donkey. Donkey's going, there's an angel, dude. If we keep going, he's going to kill us. And he starts telling the donkey something. Shows you this guy was not too sharp. Now, Balak, it says, Balak had Balaam bring a curse, and yet he didn't try to fight against Israel. That's what he's saying. Are you greater than Balak? Balak understood, if I fight against Israel, I'm toast. I can't do that. So I need their own God to bring a curse against them because that's the only way I can defeat them. And if Balak didn't attack us, are you greater than Balak? You think you're going to attack us and be okay? That's basically what he's telling them. Verse 26, while Israel dwelt in Heshbon and in its villages, in Aror and its villages, and all the cities along the banks of Arnon, for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? If this is your land, what are you even doing for 300 years? That's what he says to him. If this land belongs to you, where have you been for 30 decades? Where, why haven't you come sooner if this land is yours? Why haven't you come down and brought back what you say belongs to you? Again, armed with the truth, it's easy to refute lies, isn't it? He looked at him and said, if this is yours, where have you been? How come you didn't come sooner? Guys, we need to know the truth and we won't fall for the lies. Don't do that. Verse 27. Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. Now he's turning it up a notch, isn't he? You know, first he responded in seeking peace. They want the land. And now he's letting them know the truth. The truth is, our God took it. Our God's greater than your God. If your God had taken it, where have you been for 300 years? How come you didn't come down and get it? Verse 27, Therefore I have not sinned against you, but you have wronged me and come against me. May the, Lord, may the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. Amen to that. He says, okay, let's put it in God's hands, and God's will be done. Notice again that he repeatedly is pointing back to the Lord. You don't see him talking about his own personal conquering, does he? He doesn't say, yeah, where's your cousin... You know, Joe, I wiped him out four years ago. How'd that work out for you? He's not doing that, is he? He's not talking about the people of Ammon he destroyed. What's he doing? He's saying, you know what? God took the land once. God will protect the land again. And we're going to put it in God's hands. And let's see who wins. Let's just let God be God. Now, the children of Ammon have one or two choices to make. They can go, you know, everybody goes against the God of Israel. Not so much. So maybe we should just go back home. But how do prideful men usually respond? Oh, yeah? You don't think the fish god's as good as your god? Well, we'll find out. And they decide to fight. Well, we already know what's going to happen, but this can only mean defeat and disaster for the one who comes against the true and living God. Look at verse 28. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. He did not heed the word of God, disaster's coming. That is a common theme for every person who's ever lived. If you do not heed the word of God, disaster's coming. Amen? 
They rejected the word of God and they're going to reap the consequences. The man God uses isn't usually the one we would choose. Is faithful to serve whether he's recognized or not. Responds faithful when he's called and uses godly wisdom in fulfilling his calling. He knows the word. He's led by the spirit. And lastly, we're not going to finish the chapter because uh, I'm going to tie verse 34 on into next week's message. But we're going to look at the last four verses here. He's willing to lay down his life if necessary. He's a man of faith and courage. He's willing to go into battle if that's what the Lord would call him to do. Look at verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Underline that. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. We know for sure this is God's man because of this verse. Amen? Now in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only came upon people to accomplish a specific task. Had the Holy Spirit been... Have people in, had the baptism of the Holy Spirit come yet at this point? What's the answer? Not till Acts. But did the Holy Spirit fall upon people? Yes. But for a specific task, and usually for a specific amount of time. Remember, David said, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Why did he cry that out? Because he could lose the Holy Spirit. But praise God for you and I today, it's not like that anymore. Holy Spirit is in us at salvation. And He empowers all of us who simply ask. He's available to everybody in this room. So empowered by the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him, what does he do? He passed through Gilead and Manasseh. He passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. So what did he do? He rounded up an army. He said, okay, they want to fight with us? I'm going to go out again, filled with the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to go out and round up the men that God would have me take with me. And we're going to go out and do battle against Ammon because Ammon will not stand down or repent or turn away. If Ammon wants to attack us, we're going to defend what God has called us to defend. You know what? There's a time when we need to be willing to lay down our lives for what God has called us to do. God may never call anybody in this room to die, but He may call you to quit your job. He may not call you to die but He may call you to live a less extravagant lifestyle that you might support missionaries, or I don't know what God will call you to do. He may call you to give up your favorite hobby so that you might serve in the children's ministry. He may call you, it's laying down your life where you say, Lord, my life's not mine, it's yours. And so whatever you want to take, take it, because Lord, my life belongs to you, and I want to serve you, and I want to impact eternity, because Lord, that's what it's all about. You know, there are guys I see in India, and there are guys that I teach in a class of 500 and the instructor tells me some of these guys are going to die for their faith and they'll all be beaten. We have no idea. You know what? He died for us, may we live for Him. Amen? Amen. And may we not be ashamed of Him. And may we not be so worried about our comfort that we miss out. Now watch this. A spirit-filled man can make mistakes because that's what Jephthah does. And we're going to see the result of this mistake next week. But look what he does in verse 30 and 31. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands... Then it will be that whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be yours, Lord, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Major mistake. And we're going to see it next week. But the point I want to make here is, he makes a vow to the Lord, and it's okay to make vows to God, but here's the point. He makes this vow to try to get God on his side. Guys, we don't need to get God on our side. We need to get on God's side. We don't need to say, well, Lord, if you'll do this for me, then I'll do this. Lord, if you'll do this for me, then I will. You know, and you hear people say that. 
You know, it's like the drowning man. He's, you know, his, his boat sinks 50 miles out. He starts swimming in. He's 50 miles out. Lord, if you'll let me live, I'll, I'll sell everything I have and I'll go to the mission field for the rest of my life. He gets 20 miles in. I'll sell all that I have and I'll serve full-time down at the church. He's five miles away. I'll serve at the church. He's 100 yards away. I'll go to church more often. His feet are on the sand and forgot what he was talking about. You know what happens is there's this thing where we make these commitments and these vows to God. God, if you'll give me, then I will. Guys, we need to be doing it for God if he doesn't give us anything more than he's already given us. This is the problem here. He's saying, well, Lord, if you'll do this, then I'll give you this. Don't do that. It's a mistake, and we'll know it. We'll see it next week. Verse 32 and 33. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Aror as far as Mineth, 20 cities, and to Abel Karamim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. They came against God. How'd that work? Not too good. Guys, if you fight against God, you're never going to win. It's a mistake. You know, He's a God of love and grace and mercy who reach out in grace to us. But you know what? This victory is impressive. But what's impressive is how God brought it. You know how He brought it? He took a man who had been rejected by his own family. He took a man who had a difficult past, who was the, the son of a harlot. He took a man who became a man of the word, a man of great faith. And when you get to Hebrews chapter 11 in God's hall of faith, guess whose name's there? Jephthah. You know what? That, shouldn't that encourage us? Because this man's life was a mess from the world's perspective. But God did great things with him because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen? And no matter what your background, no matter what struggles you've had, no matter what difficulties you've been through, know that God can still do great things in your life. So in closing, the man God uses isn't usually the one we would choose. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Number two is faithful to serve whether he's recognized or not. He's a man of humility. He obediently uses his gift even if no one knows it, applauds it, whether or not he ever gets a title, a salary, or a position. He'll do it anyway because he's doing it for the Lord. Number three, he responds faithfully when called. You know what I put there? He holds no grudges because who called him? The very people that had cast him out, right? But when they called him back, he said, okay, because he was a man listening to the Lord, not holding grudges in his flesh. Number four, he uses godly wisdom in fulfilling his calling. You can only do that if you know the word and you're led by the spirit. He sought first to make peace. I love that. Because they were a total panicked mess. And here he just, you just saw vision coming, didn't you? Didn't you see some clear direction all of a sudden? Guy's negotiating, he's talking, he's sharing, he knows the word. Everybody else is panicking. And a guy comes in who God called and everything, there's peace now. Lastly, he's willing to lay down his life if necessary. Again, he was a man of faith and a man of great courage. You know what? There are men and women in this room right now that God wants to use more. Amen? It's up to us. It's not your past that disqualifies you. It's your heart. Amen? Get our hearts right with God. He'll do great things with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you and worship you, Lord. We just thank you for your word. And Lord, I just ask in Jesus' name that we would be men and women who are pliable in your hands. Men and women whose lives are dedicated and surrendered to you. Lord, when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Nothing else is going to matter. 
And so, Lord, we come humbly before you. And I pray that every one of us would begin right now just to be faithful right where we are. Not to be looking for the next step. Not to be looking for some great, grand thing out in the distance. But, Lord, just to be faithful right where we are. And, Lord, I know as we're faithful to do the things you've called us to do today, that, Lord, you'll use us in the greater things tomorrow. Father, we want to be a church that is faithful with what you've called us to do. Lord, I pray for Santa Cruz County. Lord, give us wisdom, give us vision, give us direction to know how to reach this county for Jesus Christ. We want to see people saved. We want to see your kingdom added to. We don't want to see Calvary Chapel magnified. We want to see Jesus Christ magnified. And Lord, we just ask that as as we would just in obedience respond by faith to what you've called us to do, that you would take these hands and make us tools in the hands of our master. And Lord, that through us, you would be glorified and you would be magnified. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you, Lord, that you use marred and imperfect vessels just like us. And you can be glorified anyway. You're such a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship.